0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandes. Check them out at Zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 171. My guest is Tu Lee. If you are a regular listener, that name should be familiar. He was on just a few months ago. I decided to turn my update conversation with him on Zoom the other day into another podcast episode As a reminder, Tu is the founder and managing director of Sino Auto Insights. He is also co-host of the China EVs and More podcast. I find both his written work and his podcast very insightful. It is one of the ways I stay abreast on what's going on in the EV world. This episode is completely focused on EVs. On what Tesla is doing, on what the Chinese are doing, on some of the issues that US and German OEMs are having in the transition to electric vehicles. We do get into the IRA and some other topics. Anyone that wants to know where the lithium industry is going from a demand perspective can understand where about 75% of Demand is coming from, if they understand what's going on with batteries going into electric vehicles, and that percentage will continue to increase until it reaches the mid to high 90% range towards the end of this decade. The base demand for lithium outside of battery uh, will become certainly less than 5% of overall demand sometime between 2028 and 2030. I'm not saying that batteries going into energy storage systems or uh, the consumer market, iPhones, iPads, other cell phones are not important. I'm just saying that understanding EVs is the easiest single way to understand where lithium demand is going. Choices made by EV makers On the type of cathode in their batteries and whether they transition over to a solid state at some point. We're going to have huge ramifications for the lithium industry. Without further ado, to Lee. To Lee, welcome back to the Global Lithium Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Joe. Been a while.
0: It has been a little while, and I do follow your work quite closely.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And
0: and one of the things that you've said recently, which surprised me a little bit, was that you had a 13-year-old vehicle, which is fine. I mean, that is kind of the Asian way to fully depreciate stuff. And (laughs) and I, I keep mine for at least a decade. But your process now for replacing that, underperforming car, what's Thule going to be driving in 2024? So
1: let me explain a little bit about this 13-year-old car. (laughs) When I moved back to the United States in August of 2022, there was a two-month wait for new cars. And I was set on getting an electric vehicle uh, from a brand that starts with a T, but unfortunately the apartment complex that i lived in did not have any charging stations and so my wife was not willing to park a mile away to charge the vehicle and then drive it home so i I purchased a 13 year old bmw 5 series from my sister and it just turned over a hundred thousand miles and again, immediately, because I was renting a car from Hertz. And I was paying out the nose for the entire month. And so I needed to get a, a real car. And so to answer your question succinctly, um, the best deal out seems to be Tesla. Uh, I think it is cheaper than a lot of ICE vehicles if you look at the interest rate and include the seven thousand five hundred. And so, man, they make a compelling um, case for uh, being a Model Y owner for me, anyways. So that's what I might be looking at. I'm probably going to wait till December to see if they sharpen their pencil even further. But uh, we shall see.
0: Well, let me let me almost rapid fire at the beginning here. If living where you live in the United States, you could buy any Chinese EV. Or this model Y, what would you buy? Wow. Buy?
1: So do they have to be the same price? Because I'm very curious about the Lotus Electra SUV.
0: No, you can um, you can do it. What it's it's if the world was open to you living in Detroit and you could buy anything and you know, price it is what the price is in Mm. the jurisdiction where they're for sale, what would you buy?
1: I would probably get a Polestar or the upcoming EX90. You know, it's a larger SUV because I have two small boys. And so practically speaking, I definitely go EV, uh, full EV. And um, I, I want something bigger. And in the premium space, there's not as many choices, which helps me, Um, But I'd I'd be curious to see uh, the EX90. It's a little bit expensive. It's probably out of my range practically. But if we're talking about made-up worlds where I can buy anything I want.
0: (laughs) This is the virtual global lithium podcast car buying world. (laughs) All right. So I got you on this call under a little bit of false pretenses because I thought I I really wanted to hear your take on the the strike and potential impacts on our EV development, how union contracts play into battery costs. But we're probably going to talk for a lot longer than that. But I will start there. So what's your thought on where the UAW and the various car companies are? And what what do you think are the potential positive and negative consequences? I mean, you grew up in a, a car family, You Mm -hmm. have connection to the old world and you obviously have a a connection to the EV world. So what say you, Mr. Lee?
1: So a bit of context and background. Um, We came here in 75. My dad right away got a job working at a factory, a General Motors factory in 76, I want to say. And so um, 27 and a half years later, he retires. So he The UAW did us great. I'm the youngest of eight, and so we wouldn't have been able to do the things we do, achieve the things we achieve without that union contract and those negotiations. So let me create that foundation first. Um, uh, Currently, GM just yesterday or earlier today um, conceded and now are at the level of Ford Motor Company and so effectively, they're going to give COLA or cost of living adjustments to, to some of the senior uh, members of the UAW. And after the four years, they're going to be at around $40 an hour for the, the longest tenured UAW or blue collar workers. So if we add 25%, that's normally the uh, estimate for the, the fringe, right? The health yeah, benefits sure. and things like that. That's about 50 bucks an hour. And I think that's going to be much more than a Tesla, a Volvo, a BMW, a Mercedes, a Hyundai, who all build in the United States, but do not use UAW workers. Um, That's going to create a huge cost disadvantage uh, against those guys. And so that would be okay. But to your point, I do know what is coming from Silicon Valley and what's coming from China? Bill Ford earlier this week had a nine-minute speech that that pleaded with Sean Fain uh, and the UAW to come to the, the table to close close out negotiations. And so he had mentioned by name Tesla, Chinese EV makers, and a few of these and and, and a few of these. Uh, legacy auto that built in the United States. And he said, we should be working together to compete against those guys. Um, I think it was uh, a spot on call for for Bill Ford to do that. And um, I don't know if they can really afford that much more to give to the UAW if they're going to be building EVs because the higher those contracts, the farther profitability goes out. Uh, for the US3 and i'm talking specifically about stellantis gm and ford so
0: and how much of a protracted strike has financial ramifications it has planning ramifications how much of a detriment do you feel a protracted strike would be to the ongoing development of what hasn't been a very successful Uh, movement towards EVs from the three so far.
1: So it impacts the OEMs, but it's really the, the higher upstream and the suppliers, because some of these suppliers at the tier two, tier three, tier four level, they might be much smaller. And so their cash positions are much smaller. So if they're shut down for, it's going on 35 days now. They're shut down for 35 days, they're laying off employees. And so it creates um, you know, this after effect uh, when the OEMs are down. And if there aren't enough suppliers or the right suppliers supplying the parts, then there's this um amplification of higher costs. And so um it's gonna be tough already for the, the US three to compete just with Tesla in the United States, because you and I believe that I think they have a cost advantage already from a manufacturing standpoint. And then if they, and we talked about how cheap, how much cheaper their cars are now in the United States, if they come out with a model Two man, it could be game over for some of those brands within those big companies. Stellantis has, you know, half dozen, a dozen brands that they manage. GM has a bunch of different brands. And so um, a few of those brands, unfortunately, could be lights out before 2030. So,
0: Well, you probably have these numbers off the top of your head. I do not. But if you don't, we'll just edit this segment. Um, If you take the big three or the three, I, I guess we don't call them big anymore, just the. How many EVs? Will they sell this year globally, which is probably means North America for the most part how many How many models will be sold versus what Tesla does this year? Just trying to frame how big a hole they're in and what they need to do to to get competitive.
1: So Tesla's going to sell just under two million vehicles. And uh, let's say 1.8. And let's say 35, 40% of that is in China for the domestic market. And then 30% of that sales is going to come from the United States, 30, 35%. So um, that's going to be half a million units for the United States, give or take, or Chabutuo. And then um, looking at the US3, we're at around 8% take rate for EVs to overall passenger vehicle sales. And let's let's just round that out to 15 million cars, okay? So if Tesla has 60% of that 8%, then the rest is divvied up by Kia, by Ford, by GM, by Stellantis. And so we're probably looking at 10, 15,000 units a month from Ford or GM. So maybe a hundred thousand, 150,000, no more than 200,000 units for each of these three. Um, Not a lot. And, you know, we talk about Tesla with 1.8, you know, BYD is double that. If you include the hybrids and they're going to get close to 4 million. And uh, so that's how far the U S three are behind from a global perspective. So, uh, I, like I said, it's it's gonna be an uphill climb for sure.
0: And for the listener for clarification, if you heard Mr. Lee say Shapadora, he uh is using a Chinese Maser Menis, more or less uh expression. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I did
1: that, I did that uh to for you. So
0: <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> um all right, so we have a world now where there's so much press about this great IRA-driven future for American batteries, EV penetration. But from where I sit, it seems to me that there's a lot of um, irrational exuberance uh, maybe about what our real position can be if we don't tweak some things. And I'd like to get into a couple of things is is one, the whole credit bit and the tariffs that the Chinese cars have. I mean, you've you've talked on your podcast and in you're writing about kind of like wait till your father gets home, wait till the Chinese cars show up. <laughs> How do you see that playing out in, in, in two markets? this market, US market, and then in the EU in terms of, do you believe Chinese models will be allowed into the next five years? And if they're not, how will they be kept out? (laughs) And where do do you see that going?
1: I'm I'm gonna pose a couple of questions to you because as you know, LG and BYD announced a partnership. And so um, I'd like, to know your thoughts and what your moles are saying about whether that loophole is going to be closed. Uh, Because I think you and I both agree that through 2030, the U S is not going to be any major player in battery cell manufacturing. It'll take that, that long to get everything capacity, um, refining and volume to those levels where we could actually compete with a CATL and a BYD in China. Now, with regards to the Chinese EV companies entering the United States, uh, you alluded to a tariff. Uh, the Trump administration put on a 27.5% tariff for Chinese-made vehicles imported into the United States. Uh, rumor has it that the Trade Commission is looking at increasing that tariff, uh, potentially, but they're trying to game things out, because as you know, uh, a veteran of China as well, there's normally a tit for tat when it comes to uh, what the U.S. does. And this week alone, the U.S. um, restricted or closed loopholes on the chip um, exportation. And right after that, during the Belt and Road Conference in China, China, China's tat was restricting graphite. And graphite is another major component for battery cell manufacturing. Uh, with regards to um, the Chinese companies entering, they can still enter. It's just very unattractive because if they do enter, they, are they in theory, should not get a piece of those Inflation Reduction Act subsidies. And then in addition, they're going to have to eat a decent amount of that 27, what's currently a 27.5% tariff. Now, that's going to dissuade many EV players, but not all of them. And um, you know that in order to be successful in the United States in the automotive space, they're going to have to build in North America, right? I won't say the United States, they're going to have to build in North America sometime in the future. And so uh, I think they're waiting and seeing and i think the volatility is going to continue at least through 2024 because of the presidential election but um there's risk if the united states increases that tariff because what other uh consequences would there be potentially from the chinese government on u.s companies specifically in china and so we should see some chinese cars maybe by By end of 2024, beginning of 2025 on U.S. roads, I would think. Not that many, but um, I think it's still too lucrative of a market. And the competitiveness in the China market makes exporting even more attractive, right? And hence the European Union being very aware of uh, increased exports from the, the Chinese EV makers. So...
0: It's also a geopolitical message to to, oh. be, to be in this market and and just for context for the listeners, when I lived in China over ten years ago now u s cars cost double in China what they cost here because there was a luxury tax so mm-hmm. and at the time they really you didn't really want to own a chinese made car that's all changed now, but just to to provide some background that this isn't just a super one-sided US move. This has always China's always been very protectionist about how they develop their industry and they've they've done they've been very successful at it as well. And the GMs of the world had to be in a joint venture to operate in China. And so Tesla was really the first one that was allowed to go it alone, I believe. Uh yes that that's right.
1: right. You're you're absolutely right. Yep. And and I want to uh mention the, the misnomer that these legacy automakers 35 years ago were forced to enter the China market, they weren't. And um, I'd argue that the 35 years in the China market has benefited every single one of them. Um, it's starting to tail off because the Chinese have really taken a sharp turn uh, towards EV adoption. But you know Volkswagen wouldn't be at 10 million units a year three years ago without the China market, full stop. And GM has been much better off. You know, a lot of profits come out of China. So as the UAW contracts increase, they need to find profit somewhere. And uh, you see Volkswagen and GM really taking advantage of that five, six, seven years ago in the China market. Um, And so, you. but you're absolutely right. And in addition, the F-150s can't be sold there, the Silverados can't be sold there. They they can, but there's going to be uh attacks on the size of the engine, and they're banned from being driven on some of the major highways and thoroughfares. So it makes it very unattractive for Ford uh and, and GM to ship Tahoes and Silverados and F-150s over to
0: or Yeah, Gaussi Gonglu, that's right. <laughs> so <laughs> But uh, it's all coming back. Um, Okay, so let's I want to go. We'll go macro and then we'll go micro again. But when you look at the world now, the auto world, and I remember this very well when I first started going to China almost 25 years ago, everything was a Volkswagen that you got into in the big cities. Taxis. I mean, they they had such a bully pulpit there. They were there before the Americans were there. You could watch Deutsche Welle on in your room in Chengdu, <laughs> and before CNN was there, uh, but now it looks like the Germans are having a hard time competing in China, and they're almost in in retreat, or at least that's the way it appears to me from what I read. Can you put any color on that? So they are they're um,
1: having a hard time because the severe drop in internal combustion engine vehicles. So, and this will be symbolic of China EV Inc. Because for now, let's say BYD is the flag bearer for China EV Inc. Um, uh, A few crazy, crazy statistics. Um, July of this year, so a couple months ago, BYD as a brand outsold Ford to be number four brand globally in the world. Now, they'll probably get back down to fifth, but if that didn't freak Ford out, I don't know what will. Um, And then Volkswagen brand, to your point, uh, has historically been the number one brand sold in China. This year, it's going to be BYD. They're going to outsell Volkswagen brand. And uh, China has become the number one exporter in the span of 18 months. And uh, so all of these things together create this dynamic that, um, oh, and, and one last statistic, this will be the first year that the foreign brands collectively added all together are still outsold by the Chinese domestic brands in the China market. So all these things happening at once. And um, the the challenge for the Germans specifically is that they're not very good at software and they still need Chinese batteries for their vehicles. And so uh, the Chinese consumer has shifted and the two top um, features that they want are a connected vehicle and a safe vehicle. And so um, the the Volkswagens and the Buicks, they spent the last 35 years reassuring Chinese consumers that they build the best ICEs. So now they need to turn around and convince the Chinese consumer, no, well, now we build great EVs, which is a challenge in and of itself. The last thing I'll say, Joe, about uh, the statistics is that Porsche entered China in 2001 and have seen nothing but growth. For 22 years, they've done nothing but grow until last quarter, where they lost 12% year over year or month over month. And so when the golden goose of Volkswagen Group loses that much, oh man, it it is sounding huge alarm bells at German um legacy Inc. for sure.
0: Yeah. When I when I lived in Shanghai, the Yanan was like the cayenne capital of the world. Everybody was making a statement. Yes. By owning one of those and and,
1: uh, and that's by far their best selling um, vehicle in 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 China is their largest market and the reason that the Cayenne is their portion in general is is losing shares because you know I'd mentioned the Volvo EX90 the uh, the Polestar and so there are vehicles electric vehicles and SUVs in the premium side that I think uh, the Chinese consumers are turning towards. Uh, Yang Wang by BYD, you know, so.
0: Well, when you talk about a Volvo, it's really a surrogate for Geely, is it not?
1: Yeah, so Volvo, Polestar, and um, Lotus, they're building a midsize SUV EV on the same platform. Uh, I don't know if they're actually all being built in the same factory, but- Uh, they're built off of an SEA platform from Geely. So
0: yeah, and, and just for clarification to the listener, Geely is a Chinese uh, automaker. So it's uh, things have there's, changed. <laughs> there's technically
1: three independent, non-state-owned, um, enterprise uh, automotive companies. That's BYD. That's Great Wall Motors, and that's Geely.
0: With the most specialized team of lithium brine professionals in the world, Zelandes is dedicated to providing exceptional customer service and support throughout every stage of lithium brine field development and production. From the Atacama to Hombre Muerto to the USA and Canada, go to Zelandes.com for more information. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. All right. So we've got a world now where in an EV is pretty much a battery and software at the critical component level. That's an oversimplification, but not much. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm pretty simple. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Over is a relative term. Taking a step back from the, the EV makers to the battery makers. Obviously, there's a China dominance that people are fairly well aware of. How long do you think that remains a significant competitive advantage? And then on the software side, how would you rank what the Chinese are doing software wise versus what it, what a Tesla is doing or, and, you know, we know the, the, the legacy automakers are having software writing problems. Mm-hmm.
1: I would uh, say that Tesla is number one. Um, from a digital vehicle standpoint, you know we're talking about the instrument panel, the infotainment system, the firmware, the operating system, uh, and all the sensors, and I have how everything's connected because they're pretty vertically integrated. They have most of their team on the vehicle engineer side is probably going to be software engineers. Yeah. Uh, so, but but I do think that. Uh, China EV Inc. collectively, right? There are going to be BYD who's a bit of a laggard relative to some of these other companies, especially when you add Huawei into the mix with their hardware software stack and partnering with EV companies. Uh, uh, But China EV Inc. is not far behind from Tesla. Uh, um, and, And so that's going to be the huge challenge. And you CGM last week, they have launched or released an API, which is basically a, a software kit that will allow software developers to build uh, tools and, and apps on a platform that GM can use for their ecosystem. So we're seeing them already lean into more and more software uh, because, and, and they won't tell you this, but but that's because China's pulling them into that space. And so it doesn't make sense for them to have analog toys in the in the US and Europe and then have digital toys in, uh, in China. So I think we're starting to see uh, more and more of these uncomfortable moments from the foreign legacies that are, and, and the software development is gonna be super lumpy for them. And they're just not gonna be able to compete in the next three, four, five years at all Uh, with China, EV, Inc., or Tesla?
0: Well, China's very much ahead of the rest of the world in what they call NEV sales. When we look at the U.S. EV market, it's still kind of a rich man's game, or at least is uh, upper middle class. Uh, Bob Seger, I guess, would say, the UMC. Um, (laughs) I just... Trying to get some Detroit references in here. Yeah, no, that's great, man. <laughs> yeah. You know I know Bob Seekers yeah. from Detroit. So how does this play out if the middle level, the middle America, and the lower end of the spectrum that has a that owns a car can't afford a Tesla or one of the a Mercedes or a BMW that's selling over here? And GM can't make a dime making a bolt for the next several years. How does that end? How does Mr. Biden's dream of 50% EV penetration play out in this country, given as we move, try to move the market from the upper level of society to the middle, who can provide those vehicles aside from... Your friends uh, in the Middle Kingdom. Well, I want to ask
1: you, Joe. Um, do you think that? And I'd and, and, um, asked you this earlier, but didn't give you a chance to answer. Do you think that the LGBYD collaboration, if LG builds the cells in Seoul and ships them to the United States, do you think that should get uh, IRA money?
0: Should it? Yes, absolutely. My okay. belief, and I do not speak for the people in Washington, but I, I, I just think the policy was well-intended but wrong-headed. Hmm. It took us a, a quarter of a century to hollow out our industrial heartland. You're not going to build it back in two years by throwing some policies at the wall. Right. There is a desire and I believe a right desire to have diversified supply chains where we are not totally dependent on any country, whether it's China or Korea or whomever. But to say, you know, by the year after next, you can't have any content from these countries of concern literally makes no sense because we're hurting ourselves. Yes. And and if you look at, just look at the money that's being thrown at the battery supply chain. It's all going downstream. Yep. And it's wrong headed as well. Because you can build a, a big gigafactory in two years. It takes you maybe 10 <laughs> to come up with the raw materials. And if even if you don't, obviously the US is not going to become self sufficient. It can be, it become much closer than it is today. But a combination of friendly countries. And countries of concern are going to have to both be in that mix in the next five to seven years, or EV growth is going to be much slower in this country. It's how fast you want the transition to be. You can't kick China out immediately. All you can do is, and ultimately, you want them to compete with you. They're going to make your guys better. So, agreed. I mean, that is my. I'm just a guy in a spare bedroom in North Carolina talking to a guy <laughs> in Detroit,
1: <laughs> but oh,
0: no, I think, I think I see it probably much more clearly than the politicians. Cause I understand how this industry works. And even though they have access to all sorts of information, when stuff gets written, you know, everybody's pet thing has to go in there and it becomes a mess. And I think that's where we are now is that, the IRA to be effective has to be adapted. You're going to have one-off scenarios that are going to have to be allowed, and the example you cite is is a good one. And it's um, I'm going to be in Korea and Japan in a couple of weeks, and look forward to hearing what uh, they say. Yeah.
1: Now that would put the Ford CAtl. Factory back on the table too then, right?
0: What Ford did, Farley has zero political sensibility as far as I'm concerned, because he he should have pre-sold that. He, yeah. should have, she, he shouldn't have surprised and, and embarrassed the people in Washington. So he immediately made himself an enemy. And I don't think Ford's connections and greater common sense are enough to overcome that. Uh, but be that as it may, I think that the US has to take a step back and say okay what is allowable what kind of rules can be put in place to enable because LFP is going to be critical to having a mass mass to, to adopting getting, mid, below, that, to getting below that a mid market to getting below that
1: $48,000 yeah, price and point. you
0: know it's going to take a long this is another classic case of something that was invented in the United States going overseas and then uh we it's a struggle to bring it back
1: at a minimum it's frustrating at a maximum it's infuriating that um, we don't really weren't able to take advantage of that and now it's effectively a Chinese uh, Chinese technology uh, and and I don't think I could have said it any better I, I'm I'm not a politician and I'm not a trade person but uh, it seems that the US government our government is trying to too hard to thread a needle yeah. Um, and, and please, too many people. But if if you and I, like like you said, we're we're just two guys talking. But uh, I'd like to think we know a little bit about what we're talking about. Um, well, I know you they... do.
0: <laughs> the, ju- the, ju- the jury's still out on me, but so. Uh,
1: but Ford is in in a worse uh, or, or more challenging position than GM, in, in my opinion, because they only have two products for the foreseeable future the Mach-E and the F-150 Lightning. The Lightning needs to reduce price substantially if they're going to really move that dial over from ICE F-150 from a volume standpoint to F-150 Lightning. Whereas GM, they've promised more products, but both of them are now looking and reconciling some of that uncertainty and pushing out uh, some of their demand And the U.S. government has recognized that there's softness in EV demand because, number one, inventories are going up. And then, number two, you saw maybe perhaps, Joe, last week, they are putting the $7,500 credit um, as an immediate point-of-sale credit as opposed to I get to write it off on my taxes. And so that's one of the reasons the model uh, or the Tesla vehicle makes – even a more compelling reason for me to swap out <laughs> for my thirteen-year-old <laughs> car because I get that seventy-five hundred in the lease payment or the purchase price, um, and so the U.S. government realizes that they can either increase that subsidy or that tax credit, or they're going to need to work with the OEMs and the the Chinese battery makers in order to make. EVs in the U.S. more affordable through 2030, right? It's not going to happen. That 50% is not going to happen without some give, like I think substantial give, at least initially in the first couple of years.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of give and it needs to happen real soon or you're going to be too far down the timeline to even come close to that number. What is your feeling on battery technology, you know, all the markets, you know, the players. And I ta- I was talking to a battery expert yesterday and he said, you know, the reason why Panasonic has been able to stay in the game because the biggest loss is on yield and they don't, mm-hmm. they don't have much of a loss on yield. So that's how they are able to keep their costs down. How do you see it unfolding in Europe battery wise in Europe and the U S when these things are almost like mining projects when they start out um, in terms of building them's quick. Ramping them up is not that quick.
1: It is not. Um, so I think there's, there's a two prong um, kind of strategy that I would take on if I was uh, the U S government or the, the, the European union. Uh, first of all, I would try to ramp through LFP capacity in the United States as fast as I could, refining capacity as fast as I could because um I don't think we're even on the same playing field as China right now with regards to LFP.
0: Well, 100% we're not. A lot of things have to happen both from the raw material side and just throwing capital at manufacturing capacity. I mean, we have one plant <laughs> that Nano One now owns yeah. that actually made LFP and you know, then you got Vivas talking about AI, LFP, and, well, I don't want to forget Ali's. Yeah. They were never much of a factor.
1: Sure, (laughs) sure.
0: Let's just be honest about it. (laughs)
1: Um, The other thing um, would be making a bunch of bets on promising startups because we're never going to get to parity on LFP pricing with China. And so we should try to move to alternate technologies that can either uh, supplement the LFP, limited LFP capacity we're going to have over the next several years. Uh, dual chemistry comes to mind, but again, sodium ion is a China thing again. Well, And, it, and that so, creates
0: a battery pack issue, a BMS yeah. issue too. It, it, at least that's what I've heard. It's not, it's not as straightforward as people would like you to, to think. Right,
1: exactly. and But but if if we can... And so this is where, unfortunately, it'll become political. Yeah. Because some people on the right will look at it as we're playing favorites. The U.S. government is playing favorites with certain startups. Yeah. And they'll point back to Solyndra. Um But... No. Energy independence also means that, because even if China owns mining rights, the the rare earths are actually in other countries, most of them, right? So to be truly independent, we need to not be so reliant on all these like Indonesia for nickel and and cobalt and uh, for the Congo and stuff like that. Now, that's going to take time, but that's that multi-pronged approach where I'm not putting... All my eggs in that single basket. Uh, I think it's a, a it's a marketing issue as well, where Biden says we're gonna beat, we're gonna, you know, outsell. I, to me, that's just wrong-headed and kind yeah. of uh, not non-informed uh, communication strategy. We just need to be smarter, and we need to be able to say we're on the same playing field. We are gonna be a bit more expensive. In perpetuity, but we're also looking at new technologies that can that we can tap into, you know, post twenty thirty. That's that's how I would
0: look at. it. I think your point earlier: if Tesla is able to come up with a a lower price point vehicle and then make it quickly, it, it would prove that it's it's not a country specific issue; it's a mm-hmm. industry structure specific issue. And how does that get wound out? I mean, this is people don't industrial revolutions don't come around that often. And if you read history, everybody's worried about displaced workers, but that's happened multiple times throughout history. And I think we need a new generation of politicians to help out with uh, um And this is,
1: and this is where Joe, we in our history, we have a history of resilience against these revolutions, whereas I think China would be a bit more hindered with having to pivot um because they have so many more people. You know, the state owned enterprises are a big part of their economies. But to your point, it, it has just become really political when it should be uh, you know, we either eat uh bitterness now or eat bitterness <laughs> later, you know, to, to to borrow a Chinese saying yeah,
0: so. well said. I had said we were going to talk about the strike. We didn't talk too much about the strike. Any other closing thoughts you have? The listeners here are hearing, let me take a step back. Okay. I believe personally that the Chinese analysts who used to be pretty good are still good, but now they're afraid to basically speak truth. So they have to follow a party line, which is kind of what's happening Uh, in other areas in China. They characterized lithium demand this year as words like tepid. Hmm. And how do you square that with the lithium is basically now a battery business. Strip it all away. What happens in gigawatt hours is basically lithium demand. And, And it looks to me like, yeah, 2022 got ahead of itself in cathode, in some of the cells, probably packs as well in certain areas, but to talk about specifically speaking about a lithium or one of the other raw materials is demand is soft, but global EV sales are at record levels. How do you square that or can't you?
1: I think it's in anticipation um, of an eventual slowdown in the China market. China's demand is virtually... Um, where lithium is. And so um, the price war, the and it's not about EV sales per se in China, you know, because EV sales is an outcome of the Chinese economy. And um, currently, as you know, the Chinese economy is still struggling with real estate um, and, and um, some other challenges of getting yeah. back to that growth level. And I think... Um, the tier one cities and and you know them well Beijing Shanghai Shenzhen and Guangzhou yeah. I think there's a bit of um, uh, maturity in EV sales in those cities and so in order to get to the tier two tier three tier four cities China also again needs to invest in infrastructure needs to update grids uh charging infrastructure need to update grids and then the EV companies need to, put service centers out there. Uh, I'll give you an example. Tesla announced a couple of weeks ago, they're gonna start selling their vehicles via e-commerce websites like a JD or a Taobao, right? They're gonna have a Tmall store and that's in order to reach the tier two, tier three city uh, consumer. Um, And so the tier one cities created this hundred year over year percent growth for a couple of consecutive years. And we're we're still going to see double-digit growth from China on the EV side, but not like 60 70%. It's going to slow down. And I think reality sets in a little bit, especially if the uh, struggle in, in the economy in China continues well into 2024.
0: I guess where I was going with that, though, is that going back to our prior episode, we talked about BYD and globally selling everywhere so there's a whole market outside of China and that ultimately is Chinese battery growth it's ultimately lithium demand that goes through China as as it's currently configured although obviously BYD and others are going around South America promising to build cathode and battery plants just uh, for access to raw materials but not a bad strategy right so I, I guess I was thinking if the if the global lithium market is at record level, and I mean the global EV market, and and you're moving along that continuum. Even if China slows as it's going out to second, third, fourth tier cities, the manufacturing in China, in my mind, because they'll be supplying Europe, maybe later they're supplying us, but certainly Southeast Asia, later South America, it just seems to me like there's a lot of growth out there but it's all going to be at the mid and lower end on the or most of it on on the exports in my mind it, is that is that a plausible story i mean when you're I, talking when you're talking mass market you're not talking about yeah byd makes some great high-end cars or neo or whoever but that's not where the volume is going to come from at a getting to global penetration of 50 or 60 percent over the next Interview. Yeah,
1: hundred hundred percent. You're you're absolutely right. So uh uh an indication of, of that is India, you know, they're they're more known for two-wheel vehicles, yeah. but they became the fourth uh largest uh passenger vehicle market in the world last year at four and a half, five million units. And so um I think it'll be at least in the Western countries, it'll be depending on how much protectionism there is, if there is any. Uh, but yes, uh the Chinese EV companies specialize in the sub three hundred thousand or sub forty five thousand US dollar price point, so that's where um, they they're likely going to make the most impact. But where, if even if there's no protectionism, it'll take time for China EV Inc. to build that awareness in Europe. Because remember, there's twenty seven countries, and so it's not this uh, single single entity, and so the the constraint for for growth the major constraint is entering the US because i think there's a huge opportunity for them there too uh, especially if um the tariff doesn't increase and um we see the US government allow some of those subsidies to to creep into uh, the chinese ev the chinese evs uh but we can see a lot more growth in Southeast Asia. I think a lot of the lower end companies to your point are are in China are looking at entering Southeast Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Singapore. So uh, still a ton of opportunity. Uh, So, so, so yeah, I I misunderstood what you had asked me earlier. So, yeah.
0: Well, I'm easy to misunderstand because my, my English isn't that good. Um, (laughs) All right. Well, Thank you for your time. Uh, if you have any questions for me before I ask you a couple of rapid fire questions.
1: Yeah. One of the questions, do you see more Chinese battery companies trying to, so Goshen, right. They're in Western Michigan and they're in Illinois. Um, Are you seeing, are you going to see more of that in the United States, you think? Or do you think it'll move down south to Mexico where it's going to be a little bit friendlier?
0: I think that it will be less of a direct (laughs) attack and more through the side doors and through partnerships. I do think China and Korea are much more able to partner up than say Korea is with Japan or Japan is with China. So I think, I think that's becomes the, one of the easy JVs and then they build, build a plan in, yeah, whether it's auto alley in Mexico or someplace else. And then you get the whole talk about doing stuff in Morocco and kind of all over the block. But no, I, I think that, you know, the U S took a really strong we're going to do this. We're going to keep China out and all that. And okay, so that really was not was kind of half baked. And now they have to modify it to get what they want. And I do think having China free supply chains is fine. But I think trying to say we're not going to have China in our supply chain at all is just stupid. But yeah,
1: yeah, I, I, it it seems so binary. I guess that as only uh,
0: politicians it... can do.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um, I was gonna ask you something, but I'll I'll well, go I'll ahead. Ask go you ahead. Offline. Go, no, I'll so, ask you offline. Okay. It's, it's good. All right. So. so
0: okay, I have two two questions for you. What's the Detroit Lions f- record at the end of the season?
1: Oh, this is the toughest question you've asked me today. <laughs> 17 games. I'll say 13 and 4.
0: Man, I was gonna say 12 and five. So one of us <laughs> will one of us will probably be right. Uh if I was to be in a room with your children and ask them which of their two parents is the greater tiger parent, what would they say?
1: Oh, they'd say definitely (laughs) me. Um, Although, you know, we divide and conquer. So I'm the sports and activity tiger dad. And my wife is the academics uh, tiger mom. And so um, I, and it's, and it's tough because we try to also understand that kids are different these days, yeah. but man, I, I'm definitely like, I feel like my dad a little bit when I say certain things and I'm oh, like, yeah. oh man, I, I get your dad's voice
0: up. coming out of your <laughs> mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And did you in fact get a selfie with the tiger mom? <laughs> lady? <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> uh, two newsletters ago, I was gonna put
1: that in there, but I just decided against it. And um, Amy have. Chua. So so yeah. she was at the UC Berkeley China Summit. Yeah, and I did get a chance to meet her. Super nice, but she is a sixty-year-old ball of energy. Yeah, and uh, she's one of those forces of nature that reminds me of a lot of strong, uh, positive women. Asian women that, that I've gotten uh, the pleasure to meet and know in my life, my sisters, my wife, you know, so uh, just kind of reminded me of, of, of all those, those women that I know. Uh, But yeah, it was, she's super entertaining and uh, it was pretty cool. I I got her to autograph uh, the book for my wife too. So (laughs)
0: I used her picture in a blog post I did a long time ago on my personal blog when we were first moving back from China about the arguments we used to get into with, uh, tiger moms and dads about, uh, how tough to be on kids. Right. Uh, so anyway, always a pleasure, sir. Um, thanks for being so generous with your time on short notice and with, uh, kind of a stream of consciousness theme to this, but, uh, all good it. and
1: and um yeah we can still talk UAW next time maybe uh so anyway yeah
0: well we'll we'll see what happens. It will uh Sean's got a Facebook live thing in less than an oh, hour. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um actually like give me let me let me get a couple rapid fires on you. What are what's the okay. Bills record going to be? Twelve and five. Twelve and five? Yeah. How far did they go in the playoffs?
0: This is the year. <laughs> it doesn't look like it now. We went to London. We actually had to. We had a bill photobomb one of our family shots at Big Ben. Oh, that's awesome! And then we we talked to him. It's their tight end Dawson Knox. And uh, but I was like, dude, why are you out sightseeing? (laughs) You got you got stuff to do. But it's a great stadium. It's a great venue. And the European. I mean, there was people from all over Europe there. All jerseys. Just any NFL fan was there sad outcome but uh mm. we also if you watch the show wrexham mm. um we went to the bar in wrexham oh. had, had our picture taken with wayne nice the, the owner of the turf talked to a lot oh. of people around town yeah it was that's a that's a great story anybody who doesn't watch uh welcome to wrexham uh, should because I, just... I
1: saw my first episode with my wife two nights ago and it was pretty entertaining so
0: the lady, the lady at that little hot dog stand right outside, the same lady that's always there, and, and we you know we talk talk to her, and uh, they're just so appreciative of what those two guys have done for their little city. Anybody that we said, they said, "Well, where are you going next?" We said Rexham, they go, "Why would you go to Rexham?" And they go, "Oh, yeah, the TV show." <laughs>
1: Oh man, they they they've embraced everything. Uh, good for them, you yeah, know. I think yeah. it's great publicity for for a small little town. So uh, basically, we're saying that it's going to be the Lions versus the Bills in Super Bowl this year. So
0: well, that <laughs> would be God Super Bowl. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> man, the Lions. You know, I think
0: they're kind of like
1: taking over for for America's team there. You know, I think a lot of hey, I love are...
0: Campbell. I I. I'm a and I'm a golf fan too. Mm. I thought I thought the the Rams sold him out too soon and yeah and because he was a Pac-12 guy, I had watched him in in college. But yeah, I'm and St. Brown. There's a lot of people I watched play in college that are on that team. That I'm uh, yeah
1: and and the lines they do reflect the blue collar stuff going on here. So I think that's awesome. Uh, But but yeah, man, those are my questions. But hey. Uh, Joe, okay. thanks for having me on again, and uh, I'll talk to you on the DMs. So.
0: Yes, okay. Thank you very <laughs> much. I always learn something when I speak with Lee, and today was no exception to that. It was more of a conversation than the classic podcast. As I mentioned at the intro, I really had set up a call just to ask him some questions and thought it would make a good part two to his appearance just a few months ago. Thanks again for listening.